You're listening to audio from Redwood Baptist Church. If you need any more information about us, go to weareredwood.org. We hope that the message that you're about to hear will strengthen you, encourage you, and make you more like Jesus. Blessings. We're going to continue in our series entitled Jesus from the book of Mark. And we've been going uh, verse by verse through this book. And uh, we have been uh, challenged greatly over the last several weeks uh, with, what, with, with what faith on display looks like and how Jarius, he was able to uh, literally get through the crowd and to uh, bow down before Christ and to beg him for uh, deliverance of his daughter, his 12-year-old daughter that was dying. And we, and we, we know what, what, what Jarius was and the job that he had and uh, the religious system of that day had already turned on Christ. They had already plotted on how they could trap him and ultimately they could kill him. And he was, he was a ruler of the synagogue. And so for him to come before Christ like that uh, was very costly of his faith. And then, of course, the woman with the issue of blood, she would have been deemed unclean for a 12-year period, would have been an outcast. And for her to press through the crowd and, and really um, just potentially be um, mocked and kicked out, it was just great faith on her part. But this morning we're going to look into Mark chapter number 6 and we're going to we're going to read an account of where Jesus comes back to his hometown. Comes back to comes back to Nazareth. And we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. And he went out from thence and came into his own country. And his disciples follow him and when the Sabbath day was come he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which giveth unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brothers of James and Jonas and Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And he could there, be, he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went around about the villages teaching. This morning, by the grace of God, I want to preach a message entitled, Is Jesus Welcome Here? Is Jesus Welcome here. If you and I had to come up with the three most important words for a human, and you were to to consider what would be what would the greatest three words for a human being to consider? I wonder what they would be. You know, me being a husband, I'm tempted. My wife Sarah, she's down in the nursery this morning, but I'm tempted to say, Sarah is wonderful. And she is, and I ought to say that, and I ought to believe that, and I ought to say that in front of uh, people and in in public. But those are not the most important words. In my opinion, the three most important words probably that that anyone could ever speak would be Jesus is God, or Jesus is Lord. And the reason is, is because when once you believe that, once you come to that understanding, once you embrace the 
that radical truth, once you begin to understand that this human being that we've been reading about, 100% God and 100% man, but that this human being, Jesus, was walking here on earth, that these people were able to hear him, that they were able to see him, they were able to literally um, experience him and touch him and he touched them with the fact that he is the son of God, everything in your life begins to change. It is impossible for your world to be the same. It literally will rock you to the core when you believe that this Jesus that we have read about all of these months in the book of Mark indeed is the Son of God. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't change the way you live your life, you ought to question if you truly believe that Jesus is God. So Jesus is Jesus being God is exactly what we've looked at through the book of Mark. And when you come to chapter number six, you see it once again at center stage because you're seeing a group of people that are, are grappling with the idea of, is this just a common man or is this indeed who he says he is, the very son of God? And we see in verse number one, and he went out from thence and came into his own country and his disciples follow him. Jesus was coming back into Nazareth, and you have uh, this group of people. This was his, this was his hometown. Uh, I want Nick to kind of pull up a picture here of Nazareth. And uh, this is from, taken from the Mount of Precipice when they would have taken Christ and they would have uh, wanted to throw him off. But you can kind of see as you look into Nazareth, it would have been a very, uh, very hilly, uh, small town. You see, see the next picture here. Uh, this is a picture of uh, me and Sarah in kind of the downtown square of Nazareth. It wouldn't have looked, of course, exactly like this in Jesus' day. And if you'll show us just a little of this next video clip here, uh, Nick. You can kind of see, you not so much, you don't have to hear me, it doesn't matter, but you can kind of see that it's kind of really a, a, a hillside of a city. And it was, it would have been small in its nature. And during the Bible times, they believed that Nazareth would have had a whopping population of about 500. And so with a you know, small population, it means that most likely everybody knew everybody. Now, if you come from a big city, you don't really know what that feels like. But if any of you in here were born and you grew up in a small city, then, then you, you know what it's like. You know what it's like to, <clears throat> excuse me, to kind of to know your neighbors and, you know, everyone kind of goes to the same grocery store and everybody knows the same, you know, uh, male person. You know, you grew up in a small city and you understand it. Jesus' family would have been well known. He would have grown up there and so people would have, people would have known Christ and so that is the circumstance in which this passage is it, 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 that we are studying. It. This is this is the location. It's his hometown. People would have people would have known him. Let's pick it up in verse number two. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, "From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him?" That, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. Now, Mark, he doesn't completely give a 
full disclosure of what Jesus Christ was teaching. But when you look into the other Gospels, you learn that Jesus Christ was literally, he was expounding upon Isaiah. And as he's, as he's reading from Isaiah and he's quoting from Isaiah, he's literally standing before them here in the synagogue, and he literally says these words. He says, these scriptures, they're being fulfilled right now with me being in front of you. And so he's, he, he's come before them. He's standing in the synagogue. Mark kind of goes quickly over them. And they're, they're amazed at what he is saying. Verse number three. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and of Judah, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. And so you see Jesus. He's once again in the synagogue. And often what Jesus would do is he would... He would expound upon scriptures and he would see how they all look to him. They would always look to Christ and he would teach that Old Testament scriptures that they were fulfilled in him. And now you can imagine how outrageous these claims would seem to be to these people. This is, this is Jesus. Can anything good come of Nazareth, right? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Hey, this is, this is Jesus, we know Jesus. This is, this is the carpenter's son. Isn't this Mary's son? We, we know him. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. And so that puts this question in the minds of these people. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? And I'll be honest with you, it's really the question of questions. Who is Jesus? Who is he? And then that's followed by two other questions that kind of really point back to the first question they ask, you know, where does Jesus get all this wisdom? Where's he, he, he speaks so profoundly. He speaks of such, uh, uh, of such wisdom. And where does he get this? Where does he get this source of teaching? Now, you and I, that's an easy question for us to answer because we have the completed scriptures. Paul tells us in Colossians 2, verse 1, for I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and unto all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, verse 3 is about Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." So you and I understand that, that Jesus Christ, as he's standing there in the synagogue, that, that he is, he, he's, he's spouting such wisdom, yet they question that. And they begin to question his mighty power. How does he do these things? Now surely if you've been through this study with us in the book of Mark, you realize that these people, they're thronging around Christ because they've heard of what he can do. No doubt the news has already come to Nazareth that he has just healed Jairus' daughter. No doubt they've heard about this woman that had the issue of blood, of this hemorrhaging blood for 12 years. And just because she got to him and she expressed such faith that the, 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 the disease in her was healed. Who is this guy? That was the buzz that was going around in the day in which Jesus was walking the earth. God was unwilling for his world to be left in this broken state. And as we've learned over these weeks, God gave him us, gave us himself. He gave us Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of God's glory. Jesus is God's final sermon 
to you. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says, In God, who had in sundry times and in diverse manners spake in the time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So God would have used the prophets in the yesteryear. And it says in verse number 2, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he hath bade, who hath by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, Jesus... Jesus in his redemptive work is God's final word to us. The gospel, what you and I would call the good news, is that you and I can have a covenant relationship with God forever on the basis of Jesus Christ's merit, not yours. You and I, we can, we can rest in what Christ did, and that is God's, listen, that's his definitive word. God has spoken with finality about his love. God has spoken with finality about his commitment to us through his son. When you and I, when we, I'll apply it here in a moment, but when, when, when we go through our daily week and you and I are struggling, does God love me? Does he, does he really care? Is God really committed to me? Listen, all you've got to do is look to Christ. All you've got to do is look to the cross. And you know what that preaches? Preaches God's final sermon to you. And his final sermon is, I love you in Christ. You don't ever have to doubt that. Whatever you're going through and feeling in this moment, I want you to be reminded that Jesus is God's word to you. Jesus, if you know him as your Savior, he is your ultimate reality. His work on your behalf is the lens with which you can and should interpret all of life. But I want you to imagine for a moment being in the synagogue. Imagine being blessed to see the Son of Man, to see the Son of God. But put yourself in those shoes of that time. You and I, we can look back to Scripture. You and I, we can read the book of Hebrews and we can learn who this man was and all that he was accomplishing for us. We can understand that, that as he was speaking, this great wisdom was coming from him. Why? Because he is wisdom. And I love how Colossians 2 continues to go on that Christ is in you. So that wisdom is also in you. But, but take, take yourself back to that day. And imagine seeing that. Imagine the world that has been groaning for him to come. And he's now standing in front of you. How amazing would that be? That's amazing grace. I, th I think Newton had it right when he said amazing grace. Listen to me, you and I, we cannot read the Gospels and say that he was simply just a great man. It's not enough. You and I, we cannot read the Gospels and we cannot just one and say, oh, he was, a, he was a wonderful prophet. That he was a man of unusual compassion. You're not left to that liberty because the Gospels declare that this is the very hope of the universe. This man in Jesus Christ, is, he's the fulfillment of the prophets. He's standing before them and he's saying, I am the Son of God. I am the one that the prophets have been depicting, and that's what they would have known. That's what they would have heard if they were religious in any way. They're in the synagogues, and they would have understood the Old Testament teachings, and now Jesus stands before them and says, I am the fulfillment of those things. No wonder they were offended. 
No wonder they didn't understand it. The hometown, they, they give the wrong answer. And they give the wrong answer because they actually follow, listen to me, a wrong process of thinking. We know where he's from. We know his mother. We know his siblings. He can't be who he's claiming to be. And Mark says they actually take offense by him. Listen to me, that's exactly what unbelief does. Unbelief, when it sees grace like that, it, it, just, it just doesn't understand it. It mocks it. And I think it's very important for me really quick here to kind of kind of to stop and to kind of see what's being displayed here as these men and women, they're, they're grappling with this idea of, is Jesus really, is he really who he says he is? And I believe as we, as we look into Mark chapter number six, I believe we see a great depiction of the modern culture in which you and I are living in. I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but the surrounding world actually says that unbelief is the only way to actually understand what is. To actually be able to understand what is true. That you have to, you have to clear your mind of all of these superstitious thoughts of faith, and you have to rely simply upon human reason. You have to rely upon human experience and human reason in order to properly understand what is. Our culture is literally pumping this into us. We've just literally been gone through a series on lies that are shaping our world. And it's literally saying, you got to empty yourself of that stuff that you learned when you were a kid about this whole God thing and Him creating the world. The world says that belief will not get you to what is truth. Belief is only going to get in the way. This mystical faith in God that you cannot see, that you can't touch, that you can't hear, ah, he's not what's going to help you to properly understand. And this crescendo of reliance upon human reason really was ushered in during the Enlightenment period. I want to quote a man by the name of Thomas Paine. He's a great American patriot. And he said this in The Age of Reason. I do not believe in the creed of the, the creed professed by the Jewish church, the Roman church, by the Greek church, by the Turkish church, by the Protestant church, not by any church that I know of. You ready for this? My mind is my only church. My mind is my only church. Now, as you hear Thomas Paine, you can almost, you can almost say, what a, what a horrible thing to say. Yeah, that, that's crazy. But may I be so bold to ask you, what do you do in those moments where God's call to you does not seem to make sense to you? We all right? But you ask yourself that question. And then ask yourself this follow-up question. What do you do in those moments where you're tempted to think perhaps you know better than God does? Don't look at me like that. We all do that too. The ultimate fact 
which explains every other fact a human being could ever consider is the existence, the plan, and the character of God. You and I, we can't understand life if you do not start with faith in God. There's no, there's no true knowledge that does not begin first with knowing God. And the core of knowing God is embracing the truth and the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I, we cannot just take a horizontal view of our experience. We cannot just take a horizontal view of, uh, 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 of our reasoning, of our trying to understand the situations in which we're living. We can't just do it on human research alone. And we see that so powerfully depicted in Genesis chapter number 1. If you'll remember in Genesis chapter number 1, God creates Adam and Eve, and it's so important what he does next. We see in verse number 26 of Genesis 1, and God said, let us make man and our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. I'm thankful I can have a steak. Okay, moving on. Verse number 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him male and female created him them. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over living every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Verse 28, 29. And God said, behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, so on and so forth. God spoke to them. And you've got to understand, this was at a moment when they were perfect, and they were in a perfect environment, and they were in a perfect relationship with God. But God knew that they had no capacity to figure life out on their own. God knew that they needed truth outside of themselves in order to make sense out of life. And so God, you see, early on in Genesis, he's immediately beginning to explain what is their meaning and purpose in life? He begins to explain as you continue to go down through the chapters. He begins to explain the moral boundaries that there were in their lives to living in a, in a good relationship with him. You know what they needed? They needed revelation in order to understand life. You say, Ryan... The world seems like it's in total chaos. You want to know why? Because it's thrown God out. It's in absolute, utter chaos. Hear what I'm about to say. Faith in God is the portal to knowledge and wisdom. It's the absolute portal. So unbelief is the ultimate distortion of what is. And so unbelief, is, it's never okay. It's always dangerous. It's always going to lead you into destructive and, tr and lead you into trouble. Because of unbelief, Adam and Eve, they were driven out of the garden. Because of unbelief, the children of Israel, they, they, they wandered in and they were led into captivity. Because of unbelief, Jesus had to die. So the people, they're in the synagogue here. They've, they, they've heard all of these amazing stories of, uh, of what Jesus has been doing. I mean, the news was spreading. He was kind of the buzz of the city. And as he's standing before them, and as he's saying, hey, I'm the son of God. These scriptures that I've been reading to you, I'm the fulfillment of that. I mean, Jesus said that. 
And so now they're, they're dealing with this, do I believe? Do I, what do I do? And reason, reason tells us this man can't be who he claims to be. He's just a carpenter. This is, this is Mary's son. We've grown up with Jesus in church. Church. Oh, it's just another message on Jesus, Ryan. I mean, when are we going to be done? Every verse of every chapter of this book, we're going to look again and again and again. He's just, he's just a common man, and they were offended by him. That's what unbelief does. What a result we see in our text. We okay this morning? We're doing all right? People who were made for a relationship with God. People who their, their very identity, their very meaning and purpose was meant to be found in the one who stands before them. Yet they reasoned him away. Eh, I know better. You know, if I, if I did it, I would do it this way. And we see in verse number four, but Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. Now, you need to understand what Jesus is saying here. See, most times a prophet does not, they don't, they don't get the honor that is due unto them when they go back to, you know, to, to, to their homeland. It's because people know him. You know, sometimes people here at the church, they say such wonderful things about me. And then what I want to say is, hey, just go talk to Sarah. She knows the real deal. I can give you her number. She knows all my warts and flaws and all of those different types of things. But the closer you are to someone, the more you see the realistic failures. You see their weaknesses. Now, Christ is not saying it in that way because there's nothing in his life that would be sinful. He was tempted at all points like as we are yet without sin. And we know that. Okay? And so he's not, he's not connecting it in the way that so often you would connect with the other prophets. What he's saying is, is that the closer people get to me, the closer that they, they, they hear, the more that they hear, the more that they see, there's this, there's this struggle between what seems to be reasonable and this amazing truth that this homely person in the Bible says, which you wouldn't even have, he wouldn't have just said, wow, that's the Son of God. He would have been just like us. Common man. Honestly, if Jesus were to walk in here today, you wouldn't even in his earthly state, wouldn't even have known. And so there's this, well, reasonably, nah, he's just a carpenter, he's just Mary's son, and then there's this, there's this amazing truth that he's saying he's the very son, he's the very Messiah, he's the son of God, and it doesn't bode well for him in his country. And then Mark makes this note, it's, just, it's almost an editorial note, that Jesus couldn't do his mighty work there anymore. Jesus responded to faith, and he went where the faith would be so he could continue his work. We see that in verse 5, and he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them, and he marveled, and he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. Now, it would be very easy in a passage like this for you to step aside from it and to almost say and to think, well, what, a, what terrible people those are. And I'd be so bold to propose that perhaps this war between belief and unbelief 
still persists. This, this belief, this, the, this struggle between what is the claims of the gospel and my reliance upon what is reasonable to me, I believe it still exists in this room. Do you really believe, for an example, do you really believe that in Jesus Christ you have everything that you need for life and to live life in a godly fashion? Do you believe that? Because Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, according to the divine power given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that called us to glory and virtue. If you were to continue to, to study that text, it's, it's, it's what we get in Christ. And so as a parent, if you're, if you're a parent in here, do you, actually, do you actually believe that truth? Do you live with that type of courage, with that type of um, perseverance, with that type of hope? Not because your children are easy to parent, but rather because you believe the radical truths of the gospel. Do you and I believe, those of us that are parents in here, that we have been fully supplied, that we've been fully equipped to actually be the moms and the dads to our children? Do we believe that we can have and we've been equipped to have that discussion for the thousandth time? Can I get an amen, parents? Anybody? Saying the same thing like a thousand times, right? Do you believe that you've been equipped to be able to do that and to be able to minister grace and to be able to train that, 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 that little life up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Or do you walk down the hallway and say, oh, I got to do this again? How come, they don't ever, how come they don't ever get it? No. In Christ, you have what it takes. Or in your marriage, maybe it's not everything that it's supposed to be, but do you live with hope and courage in that marriage because you believe the radical claims of the gospel? For example, the fact that you do not have to search for identity. You don't have to search for meaning and purpose in your spouse. You don't have to turn that spouse into a, you know, a quasi-functional Messiah for you. And the reason why you don't have to do that, you don't have to find your identity, you don't have to find your hope and your reason for living in your spouse is because you have a deep-seated knowledge and reality that Jesus Christ is your identity, that you're fully loved and that you are fully accepted in Him and that no matter how our spouse responds, we can always advance in love, we can always advance in grace, we can always advance in forgiveness and continue, even when it's a struggle, to get up every single day and love that person and selflessly, why? Because you and I have been radically loved. Do you believe that you have what you need to live life in this kingdom down here on earth? Do you embrace the call of the gospel that Jesus did not come just to make your little kingdom work, but instead to, make, to call you to a much grander kingdom? to where the greatest thrill of your life is the advancement of that kingdom. So it's not hard for you. I'm about to hit your pocketbook, and I, don't ever, I never, never do that, really. It's not hard for you to give. It's not hard. It's not, it isn't like, oh, no, I, I have to give. No, no, no. If that's your mentality today, please don't. I know the deacons, they just got nervous. But just please don't. If that's your mentality, don't. You don't have to. You don't have to. 
but instead you liberally give to the work of God because you really do believe the call of the gospel. And you're excited about that. Or does the reasoning, eh, that doesn't make sense. I've been burned before by leadership and churches and eh, they're, they're not trustworthy. Or you look at your checkbook and it's like, eh, this doesn't work out. You okay? Parents, spouses, givers. Or how about on the job? The job. Friends. The people that we do life in. Is it easier just to blend in so there's no friction than there is to believe that you and I have been given everything we need to be the light of the world? Because Christ is that light shining through us, that we've been given the abilities in Christ to literally be a salt. And so you and I would live refusing to live in fear. I wonder, as I was studying this week, I wonder what it would have been like if I was in the synagogue. I wonder what I would have thought. I was pondering this week of one of what I would have said. Hey, everything you've read, that's fulfilled in me. Really? You're from Nazareth. Nothing good can come from Nazareth. I believe it's still a war. And I believe it's the war of wars. We've got a lot of things that are totally wrecking our society and we ought to pray about those things and we ought, to, we ought to help where we can. But I truly believe that this, that I preached on this morning, that it is the war of wars. Is your life shaped and molded by the gospel? Is it shaped and molded by your faith in Jesus Christ? Or is another authority what runs your life in certain situations? Well, you know what? I've been down this road before a little bit. i got a little bit of experience. God, you're, you're calling me to do this. God, you want me to do this. But, you know, I know better. So what should you do with this passage? What should you do with this message? Well, perhaps you're here and you would say, maybe you'd be honest and say, you know what? For the longest time I've been on the outside looking at Christ and I've thought, yeah, you know what? He's a good man. Yeah, he did some nice things. Yeah, he's a, he's a great, he's a, he's a good prophet. But I'm coming to realize as I'm going through this study of Mark and each and every week as we're being pounded with the reality that Jesus is God, that I'm realizing, you know what, I can't be on the fence anymore about this. I can't just believe that he's a good man. I can't just believe that he's a good prophet. By the way, he was those things. But no, indeed, he is God. And if that is you, I would encourage you, I would come to Christ. Come and confess your need and receive the forgiveness from your sins that only can be found in Jesus Christ. Believer, maybe you're here and you're thinking, Ryan, I recognize the battle of unbelief in my heart. I recognize I do not always act like I believe that Jesus is God. I don't always act like I believe in the promises of 
of Scripture. I don't always live as I've, is that I found forgiveness and that I found eternal life and everything that I need to live in the here and now has been in Christ. Listen to me. Because the sacrifices of Jesus Christ, you do not have to hide in guilt. Because of what Christ did, you do not have to sit there in shame in a message like this. Because of what Christ did, you and I do not have to to, to fear coming to him. The reason why is because all of your sin, because all of your weaknesses, all of your failings or whatever, your, your, your moments of lack of faith, listen to me, it's all been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if I can encourage you in your heart, would you run to Christ again this morning? Would you say to him again this morning, I believe, but help me in my moments of unbelief. I believe. May you and I say a thousand times this way in a multitude of different ways, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, and may the realities and the, 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 the beauty of what the gospel is, may that spark in us a deeper dependence, a deeper worship, and a deeper service to him. Jesus, the sweetest name I know. Do you believe him? We run to him once again here in the moment of quietness. Has there every head bowed, every eye closed?